Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on James Hibbert. Uh, his writing has appeared in journals including Plowshares, Aporio, Otherwise, Noetic, and Athlon. He studied philosophy at the University of California at Santa Cruz and DePaul University and has received grants and been selected for residencies by Pan America and Tin House. He was a former UCI professional road cyclist and member of the U.S. cycling team. James has written extensively on the sport of cycling. And his new book, available on May 2nd, is called The Art of Cycling, Philosophy, Meaning, and a Life on Two Wheels. Welcome, James. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. And so in his book, James wrote, philosophy felt limitless in its potential to capture the entirety of existence under its conceptual net. With enough understanding, I imagined that existence would finally make sense. And this held not just an abstract intellectual appeal to me, but a deep emotional one. I projected myself into a calm, unshakable future built on immutable foundations. The secrets of the world understood. Life's pain would once and for all dissolve into the clear light of understanding, intelligibility blunting, the sting of uncertainty and the pain of loss. As I look around, it seemed that a great number of people went through life avoiding ecstasy and joy just as much as pain, expending tremendous amounts of energy to avert their gaze from deeper questions of meaning and purpose. With ideas of reality dictated by the prevailing pedagog pedagogical, social, and theological wisdom, success meant little more than a good job, which closed the cycle and defined those traits and tasks which are valuable, namely those things that can be cashed out under the ever-calculating logic of capitalism. All of this to have a sm the small consolation of hobbies which distract and the opportunity to be get and provide for children who learn more of the same. It was in the light of this assessment that, like many romantically minded teenagers before me, a vague notion began to form of how I might perhaps live differently or more authentically, how through a combination of rigorous thinking and the self-discipline of being an athlete, I might give style to my life and in the process avoid the sort of spiritual death that seems to befall so many long before their biological one. So, wow, man. Yeah. Phenomenal writing. That was actually one of my favorite passages in the book. And I think I told you, all. Oh, so I, I, you're welcome. So I, deeply identified with it. And so, you know, I want to, so I want to kind of jump around here because I actually want to start off with the philosophical aspect of your life before getting into yeah. cycling. Yeah. So can you tell us kind of a little bit about how not only did philosophy sort of inform your decisions, but the sort of context of where your love of it sort of came out of, right? And what was it that you were specifically, I mean, you obviously mentioned yeah. here, but what were you seeing around you that you felt like philosophy could answer or address? So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the uh, late 80s, uh, 1990s. So there was still a sort of counterculture vestige in the air. I mean, you could still go to Berkeley or Santa Cruz and sort of the 1960s still felt really palpable. And certainly my parents were part of that generation. My father studied philosophy at Stanford um, and University Free Berlin in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I remember growing up listening to the, the popularizer of Zen on the radio in the Bay Area, Alan Watts. Um, so there was just this, this sort of overriding feeling, both, I think, culturally and epitomized in my family, that philosophical thinking really mattered, and that sort of going with the herd was, uh, in sort of the Nietzschean sense, was a dangerous thing to do. Um, right. So I think that that really that was the seed and, and the genesis of it on a personal level. And of course, existentialism was huge in all of this. I mean, thinkers like Nietzsche, Heidegger, Husserl, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. So th those were the, the sort of figures that were in the air and and 
really attracted me to the discipline. Um, first of all, sort of hearing about it, seeing copy of being in time on the bookshelf when I was a kid. And then by the time I was in, in high school, um, friends who were sort of interested in the same, uh, hmm. like let's, let's go take psilocybin, go to the woods and read Huxley. <laughs> And I think that, that that was really a byproduct of being in the Bay Area and uh, a sort of cohort of us having parents who were involved, the right age and involved in the sort of counterculture that, that everyone's so familiar with in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and then how did your love of cycling begin? It started, I think, about it started relatively young. Um, I, there was a velodrome, a bicycle racing track, only about 20 minutes from where I grew up called Hellier Park Velodrome. Um, and uh, like a lot of, of other kids who get into cross country running, cycling, I was awful at ball sports. I, mean, I remember like just being like the worst kid playing basketball, uh, stuck in right field playing baseball. Um, and what really attracted me and I found interesting about both first running track and field across country and a little bit later cycling was that the whole thing seemed like this mental exercise in suffering. It was ball sports had all of these sort of like variables and skills and this sort of individual psychological process of, okay, we're all going to sit in the start line and whoever can hurt themselves the most and endure the most pain is the one that's going to win on the day mm. struck me as a really uh, I wouldn't put it in these terms. I was probably annoyingly precocious, but even I wouldn't put it in these terms of sort of a mind body problem, but that's essentially what it was, right? Mm -hmm. Can't like, okay, like this thing hurts, but it's all in your head. So you should be able to keep going if you have sort of sufficient will to overcome the thing. Um, right. And and I just remember going and and especially events road cycling there's all sorts of tactics you can get punctures there's the terrain but the purity of track cycling uh essentially you're lining up alone for a timed event going as hard and as fast as you can it was just a pure exercise in how much pain can you endure how much do you want it and there seemed to be an interesting relationship early on to me to sort of philosophy not only this is sort of mind body problem i mentioned but this sort of thing of boy, if you have emotional depth, you ought to be able to externalize that and take more pain than any of your other competitors. Mm -hmm. So I always had this sort of like uh, interplay between the two. Yeah, I can actually really get behind that. Uh, and when I first started running, uh, maybe, well, I'm sure I started running earlier than this, but when I actually really got into it, maybe around yeah. age 12, 13, I would notice that, first of all, uh, not only was running actually uh, therapeutic and in some ways cathartic, the, right. the reason that it became that way was, well, I, I was somebody who would always listen to music, actually, right. while, let's right. say, running. And I would yeah. notice that if I would get to a certain point in the song, whether it's the chorus or like some big part, something would happen where all of a sudden I get high, so to speak, right? right. And then I actually don't feel that level of the exertion that I was feeling that entire time, the 30 minutes or one hour right. that let's say I'd be running. And yeah. what was interesting to me was I didn't know it at the time, but uh, it was like as if I was free from, from that pain 
uh, in in a matter of speaking. And then I was like, oh, how can I, I feel like I'm tapping into something here. How can I access this more often? Or is there, is there a way to consciously sort of access this? And then also what I liked about it is in terms of pain, I felt like it almost built up um, a sort of mental strength too, like not just in the running uh, experience, but also outside in in life as well. Because I'm like, oh, if I can endure this, what are some other things that I'm able to endure? And then it became sort of addictive to try to keep enduring as much as possible. And I think you're you're spot on about the addictive quality of it. And I think that like, it's very easy for people to on the outside to sort of idealize like the health and wellness of professional athletes and to me it's it's generally or my experience was that it's not generally very psychologically or physiologically helpful uh, helpful at the level you're you're doing it at at the professional level mm-hmm. and that there's definitely an addictive quality to it there's an addictive sort of physiologically addictive quality and then i think a really strange sort of long-term addictive quality that keeps people going Mm -hmm. i mean it's cycling you can sort of think or running it's just like well you know i only achieved xyz this year but i've got like i've lowered my my drag coefficient i'm doing a new type of interval um we've got a new tire sponsor like it's so easy and you sort of think about those justifications as rationalizations and they're a hell of a lot like those of a gambler. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that, that that sort of addictive gambling parallel is super apt for, for even professional level sports. You know, hmm. What's so interesting is that, you know, we're talking about this in the same or in the sense of a, or in the framework of a counterculture. And I know you mentioned right. this a little bit later in your book, but you kind of mentioned that essentially you sort of feed into the capitalistic mindset that although initially it seems like you're going away from the norm or whatever, the average, you right. know, uh, what's actually happening is you're kind of feeding into the capitalist mindset. Because if you kind of think yeah. about what it is to be average and, you know, you definitely address this in your book, so I'm not saying anything yeah. to you. Right. But yeah. the idea is that nobody really wants, or most people, I don't want to say nobody, no, most people kind of like they're averse to the sense of being average. So it's not so much that, right. you know, people sort of, uh, they kind of buy into it or they go into it thinking like, oh yeah, this is my chosen life. You know, you look at the culture, you look at celebrities, uh, athletes, especially, and you think, oh my God, you know, why, why couldn't I be this person? You know, and the song, if you guys have ever heard of uh, Bowling for Soups, 1985, like that's a popular song where, yeah, she wanted right. to like be a, an actress and a model or whatever. And now she has to like, you know, cope with her average life. So the idea there is the same, right? And so what we're thinking here is that now there's this kind of juxtaposition where on the one hand, there's a thought that, well, this is counterculture and I am sort of going above the norm. And now we're going into Nietzsche and being the overman or the superman. Right. But then on the other hand, in terms of you know free will, determination, rising above, triumphing, uh, being super successful, grit, you know, all of these like adjectives, right? Now this sort of feeds into exactly what capitalism teaches us. So it's sort of a, a kind of a dual mind, if you know, so to speak, where you're thinking on the one hand, yes, it does seem like I'm sort of different from everybody else. But then on the other right. hand, I'd, you know, at least internally, I'm kind of the same yeah no i think that's super interesting and super astute i mean to even i guess to sort of back up in that arc that you lay out i mean i remember being at being at school the sort of cycling clicking for me i remember being in in middle school no more than 12 13 years old and seeing a team car drive by i mean interlocking my my chain link fence the school was sort of prison like 
and interlocking my my fingers through the chain link fence and watching a group of cyclists go by motor paced behind their team car on a weekday and think boy this is an escape from a sort of like capitalist grind paradigm um so this sort of whole counterculture jack kerouac on the road ideas ideals of freedom initially seemed very manifested in the sport of cycling and and my sort of early exposure to it but you're absolutely right as you sort of progress um it's very easy to realize and i don't think it's news to you guys or to any listeners that sports are a brutal business essentially mm-hmm. right so you're you're very quickly you're riding around with corporate sponsors on your jersey um everything is is absolutely hyper competitive for yeah it's it's great that you're a, a stellar junior in 1998 1999 but you don't realize that every year there's another stellar junior produced by every country on the planet so all of these sort of big picture capitalist pressures quickly quickly creep into professional sports professional cycling at absolutely any level and then all of these sort of existentialist ideals about grit determination are are really easily co-opted for those purposes Mm -hmm. so yeah i think it's it's a very tough thing to escape and i think for anyone that is sort of critical about the state of culture about sort of where we are in in stage capitalism whatever you want to term it i think what's exceptionally interesting is how hard it is to escape those paradigms and the sort of creep of capitalism where things like yoga psychotherapy wellness are now like essentially tools to that that are used to put me back in the game to be more productive and even things like sort of existentialist and joiners to work hard and self-surmount are again put in service of making someone else money in in our current sort of hyper-competitive system yeah. So James, can you kind of now take us through that? So what was that like for you? So now you're a kid, you're thinking yeah. you're, you're, you're sort of, you know, feeding off of your own hype in some sense, people are telling you how yeah. great you are. You're winning these right. races repetitively. So now right. what happens when you start figuring out, Oh shit, there are actually other really great cyclists around, maybe not around me specifically, but at least, you know, in, in, in the world, right. There's somewhere. And so now how do you kind of start determining what your actual, I guess you would call this modesty, you know, how do you start yeah. to in some ways humble yourself and figure out like, Oh shit, maybe I'm not the best in the world. Well, I think it was it was easy for me on a couple of levels. I think first of all, my my physical talent capped things. I mean, I was it became very evident to me I was not going to be a Tour de France caliber road cyclist. I was owing to my physiology and muscle fiber types and everything else, I was going to go get dropped on the road and be a successful track rider. So that in and of itself, the sort of way that cycling is structured is intrinsically humbling. You're not going to be really good at uh, an 11 second event and a six hour road race in the mountains. Hmm. Uh, so I think that that cycling is incredibly humbling on that front. It's also humbling from just the sort of sheer perspective. When you think about a team sport, any two teams go against one another, football, baseball, basketball, they've got at least from the, the sort of outset, a 50-50 chance. Mm-hmm. Cycling, You've got 120 riders who line up every weekend. The odds are, are quite poor. So I think there's something intrinsically humbling about, about cycling just from that sort of raw statistical perspective as well. Um, I think that, that 
where cycling got really interesting from a sort of microcosm, how good am I front, um, was the cognitive dissonance, frankly, of what was going on in the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, in terms of doping and cycling, right. where it was just very, very difficult to ascertain, like, how good am I? Do I need to train more? There was just now even the sort of common person on the street sort of identifies uh, cycling and doping. But it's hard to sort of articulate the way it was back then, which was, uh, at least in my head, a very sort of chariots of fire ideal about what sports were and what they could do for an individual and things like that. And then to sort of show up, not just to this capitalist model that we've talked about, but to a capitalist model compelled by really quite, I think no one will argue down to even the United States level, um, pretty rampant doping, which had profound performance effects and testing that had not even really, was not even scientifically developed enough at the time to detect a lot of cheating. Wow. So you sort of, what one had to do at that time was dedicate years and years and years to get good enough to then sort of realize that, okay, these are the stakes of the game. And that's, now sort of everyone probably from the time they're a junior is like, uh Oh, like this sport has a history of doping. It's problematic. Back then everyone sort of entered the game naive and you were at least, you at least needed to have the requisite talent of getting to the national team, nearly professional level without any drugs to realize, Oh shit, this sort of next level is, is predicated on, on pretty much on, on doping and drug use. And I think that that it's very hard. There's a whole opportunity cost to get to that position. Sacrifices made. People who, who are like, well, I didn't go to, to college or university because I thought I would be a pro cyclist. I guess I have to do this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the sort of complexity of, boy, everyone really can't be doing it. I just need to train harder. So it, it was on those grounds, I think, a very confusing difficult time to be involved in professional cycling and made me a lot more suspicious later in life of institutions that profess to be super meritocratic. Right. Yeah. There's this really great passage in your book that, so now since we're on the kind of concept or the structure of a sort of laboratory, uh, let's say experimentation or creation. Right. So you wrote, uh, to the surprise of many, including Merck, the UCI allowed Moser's record to stand in spite of his disc wheels and other rule skirting equipment. This decision right. opened up a Pandora's box of technical innovations, which would be allowed and barred seemingly at random over the next 25 years. Moser's record attempt had cost upwards of a million dollars, almost $3 million today. And though he would later be less than forthcoming on the topic. Shortly after breaking the record, Moser told the media that prior to the attempt under Kankani's supervision, in addition to his cutting edge equipment and training, he'd undertaken another novel procedure, which at the time was still legal. Now we're getting into Lance Armstrong territory. Uh, he'd reinfused right. re his own blood cells in order to increase his aerobic capacity. Rather surprisingly, a sport, a sport which had largely been characterized by suffering and perseverance was transformed into a series of technical problems to be overcome by skilled engineers and scientists. 
With Moser's Howard record, the traditional sport of cycling became not merely technological, but calculative, mm -hmm. with the choices made in laboratories and wind tunnels becoming critical aspects of a rider's success. What had once been art had now entered the realm of science, and there was no going back. Cycling's arm race had begun. So what's so interesting about this, as you begin the book, and as we're thinking it through it, let's say through the 60s, 70s, yeah. probably even, I guess, early 80s, right? You're thinking of a sport that's largely authentic, where there's some sort of individualistic input, where the person... Right. Now, you know, going back to existentialism in the Chan territory, there's a sort of a you, right? There's a, a kind of authentic self that manifests through the sport. But then as it becomes a little bit more commercialized, corporatized, what happens is now all of a sudden it's technically, if you guys, I'm sure you've seen uh, Rocky Four, right? So you have right. like kind of Rocky who's like, you know, he's this authentic <laughs> guy, you know, Italian dude, like off the, out of the neighborhood. He loves boxing. You know, he trains with other people in this area. And then you have this other dude who's literally like a robot, right? Drago. Right. He's the product of science, of creation. And the thing that I love so much about that movie is with the Drago character, there was no soul. There was no personality. He was just literally an invention, a hired gun to take out this American. And is would you say or would you characterize cycling as tr transitioning from that, where it started off in some ways, I'm not going to say it's this black and white, but it started off as this deeply philosophical endeavor where, you, you know, you mentioned the bikes and how authentic they were and, you know, you had these mom and pop shops and then once it became commercialized, now it became, it became collectivized in the sense now where there was no more authenticity. There was no such thing as a you really if anything there was a physiological self that was plugged into a bike and they were told okay you do what we ask you to there was no creativity or manifestations of some internal self there yeah no i think that's spot on and i love the rocky analogy i think that's really really apt um i think that what's what's really interesting is the fact that it, it does become more commercialized. And I do think that Francisco Mosier's hour record there is a clear sort of defining tipping point for when that took place. Uh, just the entire approach being very, very different. You sort of can compare, look, Merck's, Eddie Merck's is, wasn't a saint. He himself had doping issues, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not trying to sort of uh, glamorize what cycling was prior. But I do think that there's there's a different commercial scientific approach that you can sort of date to the Mosier Hour record, after which it becomes far less Nietzschean, self-actualizing, etc. And I've often asked, sort of as I've done this book tour, as I've spoken about the book, like, okay, let's let's sort of like make a clear line. Do you think that being a professional athlete is in and of itself um, a sort of ubermensch Nietzschean type move. Mm -hmm. And I'm always really measured about that because it's a really complicated question. I think in some sense, the sort of earlier style of cycling that we're talking about, the sort of Rocky style, right? Lending uh, uh, your own sort of imprint and imposing your will on your own personality and your own life fits that bill. But I think that modern sports beholden as they are to, to sort of all these technical and scientific and capitalistic systems. I think it's a lot tougher to unequivocally say now that uh, being a professional athlete has a sort of Nietzschean degree of artistic self-creation integrity that I think is so critical in, in his discussion of being an, the sort of the ubermensch. So I think that, that, that bringing Nietzsche into it too adds a bit of clarity um, about whether or not a sporting practice can essentially be artistic in the broadest sense of, of artistic. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
that yeah that that seems to be true in in a broad sense but and despite how uh discouraging uh it was to see these other cyclists you know um dope and and right and whatnot uh in terms of your own experience though yeah uh, did that did that really interrupt your ability to actually be authentic or actually self-actualize even even though i i get it in in the context mm. of competition right. uh it's like oh hey how far can i really go here right right but in terms of your own relationship to cycling uh were you still able to actually uh be authentic really really still be in tune with with the activity and actually use that as, as a form of uh self-creation great question yeah near the end of racing i would say no and i think that that it was too it became i think distinguishing sort of being a bicycle racer being a professional bicycle racer and distinguishing that from the simple act of riding a bike are two separate things so i think that for me and and sort of the path that i hope to lay out cogently in the book was coming back to it not as a bicycle racer but as someone who's merely riding a bike and i think that certainly it's possible in that context Mm. Um, i think that the path of professional cycling is entirely a different matter when you think of sort of external pressures external rewards extrinsic as opposed to intrinsic and i think that that sort of toggling back to intrinsic rewards of sort of peak experience of actually being present um of the sort of tactile nature of sport uh i think that 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 certainly is possible and i think that for sure i engage the sport of cycling in a great in great detail in the book but this could have been the art of woodworking or the art of playing a violin or backgammon or any number of sort of tangible tasks which i think serve a very very specific cultural purpose and and psychological purpose at the moment which is getting people back to realizing that there's a concrete tangible world uh that really really matters I mean, going back to probably the most well-known existentialist among Americans, Sartre, you can sort of think of his essential call is is going back to the tangible world, right, of existence preceding essence. So this sort of inversion of Platonism uh is i think still highly relevant so people often now think philosophy is is stupid and and as a discipline does not matter and uh, those guys were were talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or having some discussion for themselves in journals that no one reads <laughs> but i think there's a very good argument for for philosophy writ large to examine the fact that hey everything is becoming more more and more abstract Mm -hmm. and where's the root of this abstraction you can trace it back to platonism so the entire sort of cultural spiritual scientific trajectory of western culture going back to valuing ideas more than particular things and i think that that's alive and well and thriving 
So you can sort of yeah. deny philosophy all you want. That's a thread that is Western philosophical and we're in the midst of it. So I think exam understanding that, examining it, and potentially engaging figures, existentialist figures, uh, others within the discipline of philosophy who understand this trajectory and offer some means of pushing back against it is very, very useful for where we're at now culturally. And I like that when you talk about valuing, uh, so ideas over things, there's also a kind of addition to that where you also talk about valuing the things in themselves. So I really appreciate that because your version of materialism is actually the inversion of capitalistic materialism. So when we think right. about capital, yeah, when we think about capitalistic right. materialism, we think about it means to ends, right? So you could think about it in terms of even sports and this bicycle, uh, you know, the race, whatever it is, it's all a means to an end, right? It's winning, winning, winning. So I'm doing right. this in order to get there. I'm doing that in order to get here. And then I'm doing right. this to get get somewhere else, right? And it's the same thing as using materials. We all kind of use them and then we kind of disabuse ourselves of them, which is why, you know, uh, trash, uh, we have like a lot of problems in the US with trash and then just uh, waste and whatever else, right? We just can't get enough of it, you know? Uh, so I think the idea here is that when you're looking at the bike and then, you know, you're cycling with your friends and now getting up to this part of the book right. is you're essentially saying that we are kind of materialist, but not in the capitalistic sense. And we do want to do something great, but again, not in the capitalistic sense, where in right. a way, now we're talking about intrinsic motivation. We're doing this because it's a good in itself. So the bicycle is a good in itself because it sort of makes me happy. It makes me enjoy the kind of plethora of, uh, let's say, scenery around me. It sort of helps me feel good about myself in terms of getting myself to a particular point that I never thought I could get. And I like the fact, and because I think a lot of us are so stuck in this, me especially, because we want everybody to see our victories. And I like the fact that, I mean, outside of the book, which it doesn't seem like this was the point. So outside of the book, you nobody really knows these victories. And I I think for you, for the most part, when you are cycling with your friends, you're doing it for not just the joy of cycling, but also to be able to motivate yourself to do better next time and to enjoy those small victories as you get them, regardless of how many people know about them, regardless of their uh, kind of on Instagram or whatever else on social media, you know, right. et cetera. So I like that. And how did you get to that point where, you know, now, you, so let's say we're going backwards a little bit. Yeah. We're going back to the point where now you're sort of starting to realize, okay, there are these other people and maybe cycling isn't the thing that's going to sort of propel me forward or lead to this wonderful life of fame and fortune. So now how do you get to the point where you know you're thinking, okay, this has some intrinsic value. So again, not only just in terms of the physicality of it and what it is, like the bike, right, but also right. what it can do for me in those specific moments without leading to greater things. It was very difficult and certainly... Uh be candid with you guys was handed in the book about my own mental health struggles. Like I don't, I don't profess that, that my natural approach to these things is Zen like acceptance. Mm -hmm. I've always very much struggled with that because I, I was very bought into a model of if I just achieve this, I will be happy on the other side. And that, and I don't think that sort of ever retreating horizon um, type approach was particular or unique to me. I think that yeah. that's a very, very common one mm -hmm. where people will just sort of continually think like, once I have this thing, everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was sort of two-pronged. And, and I think that I had perhaps the either to be determined in the rest of my life, but either the the misfortune of sort of seeing something through very early and realizing that, that it didn't fulfill that purpose, sort of the entire trajectory of a career compressed from the time I was 14 to the time I was 25, um, 
and, and realizing that it it in fact didn't bring me that sort of happiness um and then having to sort of start over and wonder okay a, a, a sort of abortive start to okay let's try that now with being an academic thinker does that tick the box will there sort of be some level of conceptual understanding that will make everything better and the answer to that too was no right so for me the sort of only option was uh to sort of move into the space that i describe in the book of smaller things that are not abstract that are not so goal-driven and the irony is i suppose i've now written a, a major press book about about all of this which is sort of regression in in terms of this process that i'm describing in terms of goal orientation but putting that aside i think that really being comfortable in that and staring into the sort of spiritual consequences of that continues to be a, a difficult struggle and one that I don't want to claim that, that I've overcome. I wish very much, uh, as you probably could guess just based on demographics, sort of a spiritually inclined but humanist upbringing, certainly not excessively religious. But I've often thought, boy, if I had been born in the 15th or 16th century, my sort of natural habits of thought and inclination, I would have been a happy monk sitting on a coastline somewhere with mm. sort of seeing the world fully enchanted by God's divinity. Mm. Unfortunately, that that's not where, where things are at and, and time has progressed, but it would make, it would offer a sort of a counterpoint to the sort of striving that keeps people going and motivated and believing there's a happiness to sort of settle into some meaning in the world beyond oneself in, in a much more graceful fashion. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm happy that you said that this is sort of a universal problem that people go through, right? That, that idea of, and this is something we've talked about on the show of, Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll be happy when mm -hmm. I'll right. be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when I achieve this goal, when I get to this place, when I get to this area in my career, right. but you keep basically keep telling your, your brain essentially that you're only going to be happy when something happens essentially. Right. But uh, anytime that thing happens, you're, you've already trained your brain essentially to go look for the next thing and not actually right. be able to be sort of grounded in, you know, the achievement of this or that. Um, right. So when, when you talk about uh, now concentrating on the small things, what right. exactly do you mean by that? Um, that might be helpful also to... Uh, to yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't mean even like smaller victories. I mean, mm -hmm. like, I'm here and I'm alive with my wife and son. And we're going to go, like, mow the lawn. I mean, I mean, incredibly... I, I almost wanted to use the word banal, but that's not it. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, the... For me... If aliens come or human civilization stops in 10,000 years, the, the, I don't know your guys' feelings, and, I, and I'm going out on a limb here, yeah. but the, the films of Terrence Malick, I think, sum this up very, very well. I don't know if either of you guys have seen many or seen 
the tree of life for example yeah very good movie yeah, yeah. it was one of my but favorites for a while for me that is it right the sort of incredible beauty and poignancy uh, at every moment mm-hmm. and i think that moving trying to inhabit that space to the best of our limited ability is really the only the only thing worth doing and mm-hmm. i th- think that i think that even when when you're sort of talking about uh human relationships or genuinely loving another person i think again this idea of abstraction is huge i think that that all too often people will sort of come up with an idealized version of their closest friends, certainly their romantic partners and spouses. And that for years, decades is sort of all they see through this sort of like solipsistic narcissism. Mm -hmm. And I think that doing your absolute best to disabuse yourself of platonic ideals of tables and the people you love most equally is a very, very interesting, necessary exercise to move down this sort of process of redeeming the world. Yeah, essentially, right, when you uh, identify someone or rather um, idealize them, you're essentially putting them in a box, right? right? A conceptual sort of a box. But that conception of them is obviously not reality right Right. and so you you look at this real being in front of you with incomprehensible depth uh as 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 an object essentially right right? whether you mean to or not we're a lot of us are naturally inclined to do that even those that are aware that they're doing it still do it right like nobody's perfect with it but uh yeah to to be able to remove that uh as much as possible uh gets you gets you really close uh, at, at that depth, right? And really experiencing that person or or that uh, or that activity, uh, relating it back to cycling, let's right. say. Right, yeah. and, and, and I think that what's fascinating about it is I think it's easy for people to think, to, to sort of think that a positive idealization is like a good thing, hmm. right? Sure. I think it's very, it's, even in the language people use, right? You'll often hear like people be like, well, my wife is my princess. Okay, <laughs> what does that really, what does that really mean? Are you really seeing her in that instant? Or are you seeing every sort of caricature of princesses that has been absorbed over the span of your lifetime? Right. So I think that even sort of these positive idealizations this is loaded philosophical language, psychological language, but like do violence to that person. And okay, set set that aside, like you're isolating yourself in that process and sort of keeping your yourself in this locked in, for me, what's a t- sort of locked in solipsistic isolation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's the real, I, I'm not looking at this as, And I'm not, as much as I may dislike it, I'm not interested in sort of like upending sort of social situation or the capitalist situation. Like this is a shitty way to be alive for psychologically for myself, for any individual. So Mm -hmm. I think overcoming it is 
selfish. <laughs> so I think that like truly engaging the external world and recognizing it for what it is, it's easy to sort of think of that as an act of altruism, but shit, as an act of self-preservation, it's incredibly powerful. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I, that's a great thread. So now thinking of, so I actually tend to think of things in, in the framework, as silly as this is, in the framework of professional wrestling. And I bet you, you didn't know that. Okay. I was on that. Yeah. So if you think about, so if you think about, so your book, right, your book is a yeah. revelation in some sense, right? And in a very kind of deep sense, which I really appreciate. So on the one hand, and I, and I, this is why I like to frame it in the context of professional wrestling, because yeah. I think people, especially people who watch it, but people who don't like, they get it. Right. So they're going to understand what I'm talking about. So professional wrestling with all its pomp and circumstance you have right. so you have like wrestlers like let's say rick flair roman reigns right so these people that are per virtually perfect right the crowds right. hate them right the crowds they pretty right. much they find them to be repugnant so and right. then you have and this is like the main person that comes to mind is a guy like dusty Rhodes. so what was so great about dusty Rhodes is in his entire like uh the beginnings i guess the beginning stages of his career folks try yeah. to change it right they were like listen man you're too fat uh you're not that good looking <laughs> you're kind of like you're short or whatever right and right. dusty's whole thing was like yeah but i don't care i'm going to make it on my own terms. And so for yep. him, his charisma literally stemmed from the fact that he believed in himself. So little by little, as he kept winning matches and people are like, oh, it seems like the crowds are kind of like really buying this. And you now see this with somebody like Sami Zayn, who became super popular. And the reasons why the crowds buy it is because not because um, that it's not because they feel sorry for him. It's mostly because right. like here's he here's this person who, again, going back to Nietzsche, he's taking this yeah. part of him, this potential part, and he's becoming the best version of himself. And so what he shows people is that, hey, you guys can do this too. You can also become the best versions of yourselves. So what you're right. seeing in your book is that what you're saying is that like, hey, you know how like you have these books in self-help where it's like how to become a winner and uh, how right. to become the best, whatever, right. right? Your book is completely anti yeah, yeah, yeah. Your book is completely <laughs> antithetical to that. So what you're right. saying is that like, hey, you actually don't have to be the best at anything. And here's this really great blueprint, you know, I'm, and I'm sure you're not saying it's for everybody, but here's this really great blueprint that really worked for me and it helped me right. live a relatively good life or a decent life. And I want to kind of put it out there in the world. And I want to show you guys that it's possible for you too. So again, going back to professional wrestling, you are like right. the ultimate, what they call baby face. You are that Dusty Rhodes <laughs> character, the, the son of a plumber, you know, you are that guy, you are that guy that now everybody can root for. Cause they're like, yo, holy shit, man. Like Dusty's one of us. Cause I gotta be honest right. with you, man, as cool as like Michael Jordan and Lance Armstrong's are, like are or right. whatever, right. Or, or I don't know whatever term you want to use. Right. Yeah. I don't want to read their books, man. I don't fucking right, care. Right, I'm right, never going right. to be Michael Jordan. Right? <laughs> right. I don't give a fuck. Like, no matter what Michael Jordan writes in this book, and no offense to him, I'm not going to be like him. So when you, there's right. so much, there's so much kind of pretense in these things, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah. if you, and again, now we're going back to, you know, rugged individualism, capitalism. There's a sense that like, hey, if you just do all of the right things, you can become this person. But what I really appreciate about professional wrestling fans is they know most of them will never be Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns has a particular genetic makeup. He has a particular appearance because he's one of like the best looking human in the world uh, and he has a particular athleticism that no matter how hard you try if you don't have it you just don't have it but then you have somebody like Dusty Rhodes that says like hey you actually don't really need it and people are like oh fuck I really love this guy I, I like <laughs> right. that right so you know and now going back to your book I feel like a lot of what you're presenting is you're telling sort of uh, you know again going back to the average life or person or whatever right. you're telling people that like dude you don't need these things to be happy so what philosophy gives you is a blueprint and an opportunity for you to experience and enjoy whatever you have in front of you so all of these victories yeah. if anything as good as they could be and do and are right i'm not just the surface but 
as they are fundamentally, right? They're all very right. short-term, right? There's always somebody coming around the bend waiting to kind of capture your title. Uh, you're always struggling. You mentioned depression, anxiety, always wondering how long is this going to last? Always wondering, am I a fraud? Is this even like a right. real thing? Is this actually happening? Right. And your book says like, look, man, even if you don't get to the mountaintop, it's actually not that great. And here are these great ways to live that can actually be applicable for all of us. No, absolutely. And before before we go on, although I know very little about professional wrestling, yeah. I will say that Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins are <laughs> about my favorite artistic high watermark. And Billy's obvious involvement with, with professional wrestling has made me by proxy respect yeah. it. I pay attention a great deal more. Yeah, he owns uh, impact. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think that look, I think what's and I mentioned this in the book, but I think it's it's interesting to bring up because I think there's a lot of people that are that are forced, through better or for worse, to read in the United States to read uh, Fitzgerald and read The Great Gatsby. Right. I think that there's what's incredibly interesting about Fitzgerald, and he's often pegged as boy, this sort of Midwestern upper middle class guy, just spent his life as a sort of drunk who is obsessed with the rich. And I think that that Fitzgerald's writing is is been caricatured and any number of things over the last 50, 60 years, especially. I think what's incredibly interesting about Fitzgerald though, is he forces the reader to do the following. He forces the reader who's always aspirational into this sort of insular world of the affluent and on the mountaintop, they're still unhappy. So I think that he disabuses people of this very American notion of once I have X, Y, Z, everything will be okay. So what you're confronted with once you're engaging people who have every, who have no material wants, you're not valorizing saying that these are the 1% and they're the only people that are interesting. I think it's very easy to sort of misread that. I think what you are is saying existential spiritual problems still remain regardless of one's economic success. Get to the mountaintop and there's still a sense of a, an even worse sense at times of utter meaninglessness. And let's explore and engage what the fundamental problem is rather than, than sort of these vapid band-aids that I think fuel capitalism. It's say, well, if I only have X, Y, Z, then I'll be happy. Once you sort of introduce characters or degree of success that allows that, that takes care of material wants and needs you then realize that the problem is far deeper than than fulfilling material wants or needs right. so i think that that fitzgerald does that elegantly i think that there's a few sofia coppola films not by accident where she does that very very elegantly and and i think that considering it from that perspective, just clears away a lot of the mental cultural baggage that people bring to the picture and really highlights that there are still fundamental things that need to be addressed about the human condition and meaning and God or not and uh, our ability to actually comprehend and apprehend the external world. All of those things just come to the forefront, not as academic problems, but as real lived problems, as soon as, as soon as you get over the belief that having a particular level of success will make everything better. 
Yeah. And I think the thing that Gatsby learned essentially is that wealth can't love you. So as he's pursuing yeah. Daisy, this thing that's sort of always retreating and, you know, as the passage goes, obviously this is not my, these are not my words. And he kind of figures out that like wealth doesn't love you, no matter how far you get up and how many tears you go up, there's really, it's kind of empty, right? So yes, you have some sort of status, which I, which is nice. I don't want to devalue it right. altogether, but it's not the thing that you're looking for. And I, I, for me, at least that was the message of the book. It's not that that status is great and look at how wonderful these people are living. It's like, no man, there's, there's no, there's no warmth there. There's literally nothing. There's just this complete right. void and there's a lot of pretense and all of these people are obviously pretending to be something that they're not. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and at the end of that, what, what are the real problems? And yeah, it's love and human relations and questions of meaning and purpose. So I think that, and I think the other, the other sort of big pivot that, that certainly I've made as I've gone on in life is going from a very individualistic, like, boy, I better plumb the depths of my psyche to figure out what's going on with my mental health. And I think that's still very much true. But I do think that it's, it's very relevant to be at least cognizant without blaming them for all of one's troubles, to be at least cognizant of the fact that uh, we're born into an incredibly competitive society that is very, very difficult to manage at times. And I think the sort of capitalist competitive nature of modern America mm -hmm. is not the greatest for mental health in many, many ways. And I think is, is quite dangerous. And I think at least recognizing those larger systemic factors that affect people and affect neurobiology of stress and cortisol and everything else are, is a huge, at least for me, was a, a pretty impactful insight. Alan, do you want to say something or can I read a passage from no, book? No, please, okay. So yeah. And I, now, saw, I saw you getting ready. Yeah, okay. Because I don't want to just, okay. So, so going again, back to James's book, James writes, in the meritocratic world of elite cycling, things like support systems and development curves were rarely afforded the importance they deserve. The prevailing narrative, perhaps a necessary fiction for an athlete, was that those who rise through the ranks of the sport deserved it, owing to their grit, tenacity, and hard work. As I projected myself into the future, it seemed as if becoming a winner could justify my existence, repaying some incohate debt some inchoate debt, debt which I felt I owed and earning a sense of peace whereby I felt I was deep down where oh, I'm sorry whereby who I felt I was deep down and who I was perceived would finally be reconciled mm -hmm. in the early years of my racing the, this worked flawlessly I was just talented enough to be the proverbial big fish in the little pond of my hometown velodrome at Hel 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 Hellier Park and the winds came easily. As a 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-old, I was unbeatable at the junior state championships, and by the time I was 17, I was a Category 2, often competing against the professionals. I went to the junior track nationals where, once again, I found I measured up, and over the course of several years, I steadily accumulated a drawer full of state and national championship measure medals. At first, it was intoxicating. I'd leave the velodrome after a night of being unbeaten and feel as if I could do or be anything. Having pushed aside the specter of mediocrity from the vantage point of my success, it seemed that while the other riders merely rode in circles and hoped, I wasn't. I was capable of bending the world to my will. So another great, another wonderful uh, piece of writing. And so now that we're thinking about this in terms of 
in terms of sort of the what it's so now I want to talk about our uh, existentialism. Now we're talking about these yeah. sort of uh, constraints, right? And so right. Simone, you know, we're moving now from Jean Paul Sartre to Simone de Beauvoir. And so Simone de right. Beauvoir would say there are sort of these facticities about existence that it's not that we're just pure freedom and we could kind of do whatever we want, but we have constraints, right? right? Now I talked about earlier, like with somebody like Roman Reigns, who's a great example because he's incredibly right. genetically gifted. And then right. you know you have obviously societal and political constraints where we talked about sort of the wealthy one percent and you know some of the privileges that they have. So when we're thinking about sort of these constraints, how come you think it's so hard for most people to look at these facticities and say, you know what, not only does this probably limit what sort of my capability is, but this also now kind of entails or at least necessitates the the, the, the need to sort of change and fix the world to make sure that these privileges are not sort of not, I don't want to use the term egalitarian, but that these privileges right. Right, that they're not sort of, uh, at the very least, that they're not barricades, right? They're not barricades to us, at least making a meaningful living. Not to say that everybody should live like the 1%, I'm not going there. But to right. say that we should we should start now thinking about the world in a way that actually takes into account the fact that not everybody's going to have the same quote-unquote gifts and not everybody's going to have the same privileges. Because I think it runs, engaging one's facticity like that, I think runs so counter to American ideals of individualism. I think that that's a huge, a huge issue. I think very tellingly, um, you just sort of compare two cultures that are relatively similar, the US and the UK in many ways, right? There's mm -hmm. all these similarities. I think that one striking difference is a sort of working class consciousness amongst uh, large swaths of the British population. They sort of say multi-generationally, we're working class people, uh, people in the sort of strata above us have exploited us for hundreds, thousands of years. We're conscious of that fact. It's not our fault. This is structural. I don't think you compare that, obviously, to the United States. There's no such working class consciousness at all. Right. That That's just not that's not what. America was founded on or how, how Americans tend to think. It tends to be if something is not going right, I am not working hard enough. And I think that that is the American ethos. I think it was perhaps a necessary ethos for a sort of westward expanding, granted genocidal, I'm not, I'm not glossing over that fact, but a sort of frontier culture of the 17th, 18th, early 19th century that sort of individualism if you're in the woods alone and you're going to starve you better figure out how not to but i think that the the cultural transition um has been a difficult one for the united states to sort of shift from that sort of rugged individualism up by your bootstraps ethos to one that i think is just not just politically better but more realistic about how to function in a highly industrialized democracy in the 21st century. Right. That sort of right individualism as a basis for a culture that is so technologically connected and interdependent just doesn't compute to me. Not again, not on any like moral political grounds, although it does, but let's set that aside, but just on sort of like rational, logical ones. So I think that that that's that's really the the sort of heart of what's of what's going on in terms of of the sort of facticity that you mentioned, Leon. 
<laughs> okay. I just thought you wanted to say something. Okay. So, and now this is uh so now uh, I want to get into a little bit more per personal territory. So James yeah. you and I spoke a little bit about William Styron's uh, Darkness Visible. So it's a yeah. book that really affected me. It's my mentor who I talked about a lot on the show, yeah. Tim Stroop. He actually gave me that, gift me, gifted me that book a while ago. And so that book deeply influenced me because I felt that it was one of not only just the most personal accounts of depression, right. because I mean, you have that, right? But I thought it was the most in-depth or one of the most in-depth accounts of depression that I've Right. Yeah. So can you tell us if you're obviously okay talking about it? So can you tell yeah. us a little bit about kind of what happened with you and your depressive episode, what it was like yeah. for you, some of the experiences, and obviously also now relating this to a darkness visible, how come that book spoke yeah. to you? Well, there's been for me, definitely, um, I, I've struggled with multiple sort of depressive episodes in my life. I think the first was um, I became very overtrained um, after the 2000 season. Mm -hmm. And it was funny. There was a sort of like a funny sense of, boy, I can do anything. I'm riding 30 hours a week and I've, I'm taking all these classes in philosophy and doing super well. And I wake up at, at six in the morning and I'm going to the gym and just sort of like feel superhuman for three or four months. And then just this incredible psychophysical crash. And now knowing what I know about the sort of psychology and even physiology of a major depressive episode, I think that's not entirely uncommon. And certainly uh, it, that happening in one's freshman year of university is also not uncommon. Um, but yeah, for me, it was has been a sort of uh, boom bust cycle like that with probably three pretty terrifying episodes of of depression um and there's a family history of of depression and suicide uh, that's quite strong um and always was sort of in in the background growing up mm. i think that once there's there's suicide in one's family even if you don't know the person family member well, it suddenly becomes, okay, this is a thing that is done. This is a, a sort of proverbial option. Right. Um, and that, for me, had a profound effect, um, as well as the sort of just like trickle effects of trauma. I mean, I'm, I'm become very, very interested in the sort of like epigenetics of trauma, where it in the most literal sense is passed on in, in families and have thought about that a great deal. You're not really starting with a, a clean slate. And some of the studies that have been done about, about how it is passed on, I think are intriguing and hopefully will lead to more medical insights in the relatively near term. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Right and then I assume when you looked at cycling uh, in that kind of context, I'm not because I, I wanted yeah. to say from, from the get go, but I'm assuming it wasn't uh, it wasn't like that, because if you since cycling was a part of your youth, I, I'm pretty yeah. sure it wasn't it wasn't looked at as that. So what I'm thinking is or I'm wondering is, did you think of cycling not just as a way out of sort of the mundane, but also as a way out of depression where once? Oh, I yeah. Reach, yeah. Right. Once I reach some sort of yeah. state like that's it, I'm never going to be sad again. Well, it's two. It was twofold. It was like day to day. I think that, that the structure of sports are helpful for someone who has mental health struggles. It may sound like you're, you're, you're only 
X amount and, and you can imagine one still has free hours in their day. That's really not the case. You wake up, you, you eat at a certain time, you go training, you go and wash cycling kit, you wash your bike, you go and see your massage therapist, your mechanic, like your day is pretty much planned out in a very, um, in a very structured routine type way that I think is very helpful for someone with mental health struggles. I think secondary to that, you're always just tired. So sort of depressive anxiety falls away when you've just, you've exercised for three, four, six hours. There were days at, at when I was living at the training center where it was literally, you wake up, you're on an ergometer uh, before breakfast, then you do track training, then you do road training, then you lift weights. I mean, yep. it's, it's your day and you're physically just blowing in a way that everything sort of goes away. And I think that for myself, and I'm confident in saying for a, a number of people that are attracted to high level sports, what's dangerous about that is you can sort of kick a mental health can a long ways. You can sort of start something when you're 13, 14, keep going and coping by that process of physical exhaustion, structure, et cetera. And then stop and sort of wake up when you're 35 and 40 and be like, shit, I've got no no other coping mechanisms to actually deal with this thing. So I think on that front, that's why you see relatively high, high rates of depression amongst very, very good athletes. I mean, people like Michael Phelps, who've spoken out about their depression. Uh, and I think increasingly, uh, you're finding that that athletes are being more candid about that fact and and i think that there's some real clear-cut reasons why um yeah so for me i think that that certainly there's been there's been multiple pretty profound episodes um i've had psychotherapy i've had transcranial magnetic stimulation several times mm. to try and get out of of the most severe spots um but yeah, it's been, it's been a, a, a definite struggle. And I think in terms of Styron's book, it, it's really funny. I mean, I think I read it maybe when I was 19 or 20 for the first time. And to be frank, I didn't really, it didn't really resonate. I mean, I love his fiction and thought he's a brilliant writer, but I read it and it struck me as being very physiological and very clinical. Mm. Right. He sort of describes something going on in his in his body. He describes the medicines, the meetings with doctors, everything else. And I think more so than any book I've ever read multiple times in my life, I reread Darkness Visible after myself having a, a depressive episode. And it was just a completely different text. I mean, it seemed like he was reporting back from my experience in a way that was just incredible. I mean, it didn't seem like the book that I'd read the first time. So I think what he captures is the absolute depth and terror of the psychological pain. Um, and then. Feeling like it's not just a matter of 
your brain or your psychology, but how physiological it feels and, and trying to just figure that out. I mean, I can't, I can't recall it and it's, it's stuck with me. One of the quotes that I really absolutely remember in, from that book is the experience is, is such an awful one. You wouldn't wish it on either Himmler or Eichmann. I can't remember, but that's, that's the level of, of suffering that he describes and articulates. And I think that's pretty spot on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So sometimes uh, you can't necessarily rationalize why you're feeling depressed, right? Yeah. Like it, it's yeah. A, it's literally just a, a crazy sensation in the body. You try yeah. to uh, come up with the reasons of it to this way, at least you have some form of combating it or at least, oh, there's a narrative. Like for example, right. uh, a lot of people will at least have uh, ruminating thoughts, right? right? And then maybe, uh, oh, okay, I'm identifying with those ruminating thoughts. Oh, okay, that's ego. Okay, I'm not the right. ego. You know, it's not that simple, but like, you know, you know what I'm saying? But then right. other, but other times there aren't any thoughts. You literally feel physiologically like crap. It's lasting however long it's lasting. Right. Days, weeks, months. And right. you, you know what, what to do. And then, uh, I, I believe there's a, a form of, um, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, not just in cognitive behavioral therapy, but there's, uh, um, what is it? Uh, it's where it's sort of like a form of meditation where uh, you essentially go into the feeling that you have in your body and you're right, essentially right. trying to put all of your attention on the feeling. And then do these brief yes, but then I, I forget there's like a specific hmm. uh, name for it. There's this uh, doctor... I don't even have it. I don't have the book behind me. Oh, well, <laughs> something Hawkins. All okay. right. But anyway, okay. uh, yeah. So, uh, but it's very, it's very interesting uh, because then you, you go into uh, the feeling that you have uh, and then there's a certain breathing exercise where supposedly, now here's the thing. I've felt it work yeah. in my experience, but I wouldn't yeah. say that this works for everyone right. across the board. But yeah, by going through those breathing exercises while concentrating on those feelings, supposedly that allows you to feel like uh, essentially these repressed or suppressed feelings that maybe you have in your body, which right. uh, for a lot of people, these these feelings that usually they suppress or repress, they just kind of uh, turn into thousands of different thoughts, right? And a lot of people go at it by uh, combating the thoughts or thinking about how some of those thoughts don't make sense or the narrative right. doesn't make sense. But, um, this, this form of sort of meditation, you, you go into the, the feeling supposedly feel it all the way through and then, right. uh, it's a quote unquote released. Hmm. So I, I don't know if that's, uh, well, helpful you, or not. Well, so you know what I would add to that? So this is what I really appreciated about Siren's book. So he didn't actually overcome yeah. depression. So if you kind of right. get to the end, so a lot of, the, so this is how the book goes, right? Yeah. So he goes, sees a psychiatrist, that person gives him a bunch of platitudes. Then he gets, go sees another person. That person gives him platitudes, right? So over and over, he's like, oh shit, like the system doesn't really work well. Like, what am I supposed to do? And then right. finally at a point, there's like this sort of crescendo where I think he's about to get some sort of literary award in Paris, if I'm not mistaken. Right. 
And he just doesn't even want it. He's like, yo, I don't want it. And at this point, like now there's a cascade and he spirals down and then essentially he gets hospitalized. And so for him, and this is kind of like anticlimactic, the reason why he got better was literally because of the hospitalization. And if you ask him and he's like, you know, people are like, oh, I, how did this work? And he would say something like, I just, I don't know. I didn't have like anything to do. And after a while, like I just kind of <laughs> reset it. Right. And there was no real, real reason for it. And so what I love about that is that it kind of tells you how sort of random depression can be. And, you know, I've spoken about this on the show where I talked about my graduate school experience, even though I don't think that was so random because like school was really tough, but I couldn't necessarily pinpoint why I was so suicidal at the time. I'm sure the workload had something to do with it, but I don't think it was the only thing. And so I remember thinking that just like where people would tell me like, hey, you know, you're doing this great thing. Your career seems to be going somewhere. Uh, You know, you have friends, people who love you, et cetera. And for whatever reason, it just didn't matter to me. I don't know why. I just didn't care. I was like, you you can kind of have it all, you know? And so there were moments where I really just felt like not only did I want to drop out of graduate school, which I never really did, obviously, and I didn't take too seriously, but I wanted to. I was like, you know, I'm not really getting much gratification for it. And then I remember thinking, well, and, you know, going back to, you know, and when, right? I remember thinking, okay, but once I get out of graduate school, this is the thing that kind of kept me going. Maybe that, then I'll be happy, right? And then I remember that the thinking was, okay, now I want to be a writer, right? So now when I'm published, then I'll be happy. And then it was, you know, our podcast. And then I'm thinking, okay, when our podcast takes off and, you know, we have all of these guests and we have, we've had these guests that I just never thought I'd ever meet. And I was like, okay, and then I'll be happy. And then after a while, you kind of realize that it's not really any of these things. So in terms of just the way you see yourself, I mean, this is just, you know, kind of my understanding of myself. And I think the the thing is that once your sort of self-conception, and I'm going to intellectualize this because I do this, uh, once your self-conception is like so kind of fundamentally bad, no one thing is ever going to fix it. So it's like every single time that you kind of think about like some sort of victory, you're always able to explain it in a way because then it sort of molds or it fits your kind of self-conception. It's like, oh, this doesn't count because, you know, uh, this doesn't count because it didn't fix me. Uh, This doesn't count because it doesn't prove that I'm smart enough. This doesn't count because I'm not attractive enough still, right? whatever it is, like you find ways to kind of explain it away. And so I think the thinking is, and this is, I'm actually going to tie this into your book. I think the thinking is, is that if you ever depend on anything external to sort of fix you, it's never going to work. And so when you're thinking about Styron's book, what he pretty much showed, and this is going back to that award, this is what I think fundamentally touched me about the book is that here's this person at the pinnacle of his career, who is incredibly lauded and respected. And then he realizes at the end that, yeah, it's not that that's, that's not the thing that's going to make me happy. But And here's sort of the cliffhanger. He doesn't really know what is. And I feel like that's where kind of I'm at now where, you you know, we're looking at this podcast, which I obviously appreciate. And I love these conversations. I love writing. I love when people give me feedback, but ultimately it's not any of those things. So when you're asking like, Hey, you know, what's ever going to make you feel good about yourself? I think honestly, man, the answer is nothing, but it could be okay. I'm not saying it's like this dark cloud that has to hang over you. Well, I think that's what I think you're spot on. And I think that that's what's, what's frightening because I think the answer clearly is nothing in terms of extra, but then you're sort of hanging over this void of, okay, like if my identity is not predicated on these achievements and I don't have this sort of ladder to climb that I think is a very American ladder that we're all indoctrinated to want to climb, then that's not going to make us happy. Then you, you can sort of even see, uh, and perhaps I'm revealing where I'm at at the moment, which is like you, okay, published a book, like that's, that doesn't, not happiness in and of itself. So how do you sort of become comfortable sitting in this 
space of not being goal-directed when so much of our early life, and I think I can say this pretty universally, is directed towards being, school teaches us to be goal-directed, sports, everything. So I think that, that figuring out, seeing through goals and seeing through this sort of belief that once I have X, Y, Z, I will be happy is I think necessary. But I think the next step is also a very, very difficult one. So I think that that it's very easy for people to say, boy, like capitalism is broken and this goal-oriented external validation is not, is not and I think that's 100% correct. But I think that filling that void then, having seen through that, becomes a, a very difficult project. And I think that that's, that's hopefully where, where existentialism can offer a few answers. Existentialism, for some people, religion, for some people, a sort of humanism grounded in kindness and love and interpersonal relationships, some combination of all, all of these. But I do think that, that, there, I think it's it's easy to the best way that that I can sort of conceptualize it is sort of three stages, right? A sort of body and stage that's goal oriented and achievement based and sort of half asleep. The next stage being like a rejection of goal oriented. I'm going to be happy when X happens behavior, and then what the hell do you do in the wake of having seen through the vapidity of achievement and i think that that what the hell you do once you've seen through that is a bit more problematic a step than, than it is typically given credit for yeah. I, I, so you, yeah, you i don't know, know if you guys have thoughts on that but. well you you know what's so interesting i don't know alan really liked this so i i uh, i don't remember where the quote is exactly from uh, but i remember yeah. you and i talked about this years ago now you might not even remember it where the quote is enlightenment is not a, a sense of wisdom or a seeking of wisdom enlightenment is actually the lightness of spirit so when i think about this now when i think about what enlightenment is it's actually in my conception of it it's a freedom right it's a freedom from the burden of having to pursue goals in order to feel like again there's some sort of endpoint that's going to find make you feel like you've arrived. So for me, at least, right, it's not that I think, so I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. So like right now, I'm also trying to get published again. But the thing is, for me, it's actually not that important. So it's not to say that I wouldn't feel like uh, not disappointed, upset, sad, because right. I would if I get rejected. I'm not saying that because right. obviously I would. But the thing is, for me, it's more like, oh, well, this is kind of just another thing, right? If it happens, it's going to make me feel good for like a couple of weeks, maybe, and then I'm going to move on right. and I'm going to go do something else. So what I like about that is that now I'm not no longer at this point where I think this one thing is going to fulfill me. So I think the idea here, and this is what I think your book shows, is that because like, no, so it doesn't have to be black and white because one thing isn't going to fulfill you. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to leave the world altogether, you know, so right. to speak, right? right? You can sort of pursue these things and even chase these goals to whatever extent, but you can unload the burden of feeling like or needing to feel like, you know, these things are going to solve or resolve your existential crises because they're not right. going to. So for me, at least again, and I think this is what pretty much Styron, in my opinion, was kind of getting at. I think because- yeah. 
because you don't really know where depression comes from and you don't really know kind of what alleviates it, I think you can kind of stop trying to fix it and stop trying to right. fix yourself and try, stop trying to, to sort of be obsessed with fixing the world. And, you know, this is when right. we talk about idealism, where this idea is like, once I fix the world, I'm going to be happy. And once I fix myself, I'm not going to, I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to be sad right. anymore. And a lot of this stuff is, again, these are all pipe dreams. And so what that does, I think, is it really frees us up to now pursue goals in a much more intrinsic way where it's like, so the podcast is a good example, right? So I don't necessarily think the podcast is going to be in terms of like views or whatever. I don't think we're going to get in the millions, right? Maybe we will, and that'll be great, but I don't. But for me, right. at least, I think just doing it and just getting the just intrinsic joy of like talking to you and talking about right, philosophy, right. right? And not even helping the world, to be honest, helping me, right? Because I'm <laughs> yeah. happy right now in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, just, that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of enough for me, you know? And I right. feel like, uh, and I don't know if you guys, have you ever seen the recent Woody Allen film, Rifkin's Festival? I haven't seen it. No, I love okay. Woody Allen, but I've somehow missed that phenomenal movie, man. It's uh, okay. it's with uh, a show. What's his name? Wallace Shawn, by the way. Okay. So okay. yeah, for, yeah, I love that dude. Yeah. So okay, so there's this great scene in the end, right? So okay. where he talks to uh, where he talks to the Ingrid Berg. What's his name? Ingrid Bergman, I think the the, the yeah. So he talks to the character Death, right? The you know the okay. famous character yeah, that plays yeah, chess. From the seventh yeah. seal. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Yeah. So right. So they're playing chess, right? And so he says to him, Death says to him, he's like, okay, so like, uh, what's what's wrong? Like, how come you know you're always struggling? Like, what what's going on? And he's like, well, you know, he's like, I feel like I'm sister, and you know. In the in the wall of Sean voice. Uh, he's like, you know, I feel like I'm Sisyphus. And he's like, you know, I have this dream every single night where I'm kind of rolling up a boulder up a hill. And then, you know, it just falls. And no, before it falls out, he's like, and then I look at it and I'm like, well, what yeah. do I have? I just have a rock on a hill. So what's the point of all of this? And so that says something along the lines of, and it's been like two years since I seen this movie. So that says something to him like, dude, he's like, like, do you enjoy your life? And he's like, well, I don't know, because he's like, you know, I have like this burden on me. I have to write like the next great American novel. And he says, okay, but like, do do you actually like enjoy like parts of your life? Like he's like your film class, you know, I've been watching you. He's like your film class. It seems pretty great. It seems like you have like these really lively discussions with your students. You seem to really enjoy it. They seem to come away with it really happy. You know, they seem to right. really think well of you. You know, you get great kind of ratings or whatever. Um, and it seems like you walk away from it pretty happy. And he said, yeah, you know what I actually do. And so that says like, why would you want to sacrifice that for like the great American novel? And of course, at the end, you know, he has this great realization that even though he's never going to be a prominent writer, he actually still has parts of his life that he can he can enjoy and so he has this beautiful right. wife that he eventually is like okay this marriage is done i don't want this anymore i'm no longer going to pursue like these much younger attractive women like to make myself feel better about myself or whatever and he just now kind of leans into the life that he already has and there's something beautiful and poignant about that yeah. so again we're not yeah. yeah we're not talking about goals anymore not in the sort of long-term uh you know kind of more narcissistic sense we're mostly right. talking about short-term goals what i can get out of them in the immediate and what is it that they're doing for me and the kind of you know relative community around me so yeah and that's just pretty much where i think your book goes well i love your turn of phrase leaning into the life you already have i mean i think that that is really hits the nail on the head i mean i think that's absolutely huge leaning into and waking up to noticing i mean i think that so much of this is about not failing to notice is is i think huge failing to know and i think that there's there's a conspiracy to fail to notice you sort of fail to notice because of your aspirations you fail to notice because of your idealizations you fail to notice for a litany of reasons and i think that that, that failure really breeds unhappiness and i don't know disenfranchisement sort of mm -hmm. your, your disconnection so I think that, that that is one of the the big things that that's huge. And and I worry about that on a macro cultural scale happening 
more and more because of, I don't think technology in many ways is great for, for getting people to notice. I think that, that sort of some of those trends are seemingly going in, in the not great direction, but. Right. With people yeah. being so distracted all the time, going to their phones, TikTok, et cetera. Yeah. I think that, yeah. that those are, are trends that are worrisome, but I do think, I think that, that obviously the other sort of, of thing that's absolutely zeitgeisty in the air at the moment is obviously AI things. And I think that overall, I went from being a sort of Heidegger reading Luddite to in some ways being like, okay, like if this pans out well, this could be incredibly interesting. I mean, hmm. in, even in terms of what, what we're sort of thinking about discussing seems like we're at a clear cultural inflection point for something technologically, and we're at the bottom of seemingly a steeper curve than perhaps humanity has ever encountered. And and the next five to seven years could be incredibly interesting on that front if things are managed well and and not in a exploitive fashion. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, it it could have a large benefits definitely uh, from an education standpoint. Um, right. and technically, you know, uh, uh, I forgot who said this, but essentially like even our phones, right. That, that some, somebody came up with, uh, something called the extended mind, mind mm -hmm. thesis, right. Right. Essentially. Oh, we have an extended mind here. We carry it around with right. us all the time. We have access to all the information in the world. Well, um, if AI is, uh, let's say superior, uh, to this right. or exists on this, um, right. In terms of how quickly it computes uh, answers to things, or just knows to automatically maybe say something to you, um, it, it it could be it could have a a really beautiful uh, impact. I, I could see it going the other way too. There's you know different figureheads who say different things on this. Sam Harris thinks it's right. yeah we're doomed. Elon Musk is <laughs> like we need to have regulated this five years right. ago. So right. now I'm not sure where we're going. You know. But um, yeah, the know, doomsayers. I, yeah. By the way, Michael Shermer has been like super and like vehemently against it. You know, he's been like really pissed off at like Tristan Harris and all these people that are like, you know, the doomsayers. Like, oh, fucking AI is going to kill us or whatever. I mean, look, any any technology, right? I, I'm I, I like how we got away a little. Yeah. bit. So I will bring it back. But uh, anyway, as far <laughs> as um, as far as that goes, I mean, I, I suppose if somebody is a good hacker, yeah, right. I mean, who. And there's people who are always figuring things out before regulators or the people who create these right. devices like have a fix or a patch or whatever, yeah. right? So who knows the potential for that? I mean, if your car is run by AI and somebody hacks the AI of your car and it was, you know, that'd be better than having the, you know, so James, we clearly started filming our second episode of the day on AI. <laughs> well, even, even to loop this back, to loop this back, I think what's, what's very interesting is like, look, there's a lot, I think that again, I want to acquiesce from the outset. This is a sort of like upper middle-class coastal problem, but there's a lot of people who I think would get them to have a couple drinks and they will admit that their job is entirely, entirely effing pointless. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're they're middling marketing managers. These are jobs that I've had. People are making Excel spreadsheets. And I think that what's very interesting in that is there's sort of you look at the language that's been developed around business proficiency, 
sort of LinkedIn MBA type language. Mm -hmm. And there's an entire ecosystem to sort of justify and make it seem as if something substantial or meaningful is being accomplished in these millions of jobs that people are doing. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, my sort of thesis take on this is that really everyone who's got these jobs knows deep down that they are pretty existentially pointless. And I think that there's a lot mm -hmm. of anxiety that comes and a lot of weird depression and compensation that comes from that fact. To bring it back to AI, I really, really wonder what segment of those jobs could be done by AI. And yes, there could be people who have student debt and MBAs and JDs who are now unemployed and in bad straits. But if you're a techno optimist, you can sort of think of the potential to emancipate people from these sort of 20th, late 20th century, 21st century jobs that, mm -hmm. that everyone knows are kind of, of pointless. So I think that that's, that's one interesting way and, and possible application to reason to potentially be a little bit optimistic about, about AI. You're not generating spreadsheets and silly marketing copy. Okay. Does the government have to come in with the universal basic income because potential voting block is now unemployed maybe right. but yeah yeah no hopefully no honestly that that that's that's still my view too i'm also a techno optimist yeah. i honestly i i think only i i can't even imagine what's going to be five years from now ten years from right. now we may have robots you know right. it's probably going to be just this no <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah, five years ago you would have said the same thing no, oh, and okay. we do have robots. It's not gonna, just not commercially available. Though. Okay, okay. Inflection right. point, Leon. The inflection point. We're we're at the bottom. Yeah, I'm too much of a nihilist, I guess. <laughs> All right. So, uh, well, are you ready? Well, and, oh, so I wanted uh, to ask you uh, actually, maybe maybe one of our last questions. Oh, yeah, no, go yeah. for it. Go for it. Um, so, what what is it that maybe you hope that um, readers uh, can get from the from get from your book exactly? I think that they can get hopefully three things. I think that, first of all, as we talked about, I want to preface this by there's a Zizek quote that says against philosophy as self-help. That sort of mm -hmm. says essentially like the point of philosophy is to, I'm paraphrasing, but the point of philosophy is for people to realize what deep shit they're in. Yeah, I agree with that profoundly. Um, so... In as much as there's any answers, advice in the book, I think it is essentially like, here's the trajectory of one person doing their best to be honest in that description of what that trajectory is. And, and I think that hopefully that level of truth is more and honesty is more insightful and instructive than here are five ways that understanding Hume will make you more productive at in your tech job. So right. it's, it's definitely not that. Um, I think that for me, it's more, more than anything else is about getting over a very particular form of isolation and alienation that I find utterly terrifying and psychically painful. Hmm. 
So I think that describing from a big picture philosophical perspective the trajectory of Western thought and how it's led to where we are and then juxtaposing that with something tangible and personal and emotional is really what I hoped to articulate in order to explain that the sort of conditions that, that we have are based on how we think and interpret the world in a lot of ways. And that there's a certain point, however, where rational attempts to comprehend and apprehend the world break down. Mm -hmm. And I think that tellingly, when I was in graduate school for philosophy, and even before then, I wasn't interested in what philosophy could solve or any methodological insights it's had in terms of clarifying language or, or anything like that. I was interested where philosophy broke down. Mm. And, and this sounds hyperbolic, but interested in the points. Uh, Deary Daw, for example, describes points where Western philosophy is literally suicidal. It turns against itself because at the ends of its own rationality, it becomes incomprehensible. <laughs> so I think that there's something very, very interesting about where taken to an extreme, rational, philosophical, argumentative thought processes and modes of writing and engaging the world break down and no longer work. And for me, understanding the limits of philosophy helped me to understand the limits of my own rationality and my own ability, certainly to think my way out of my own struggles. Hmm. So I think that, that that's another key piece is to sort of follow this trajectory from the pre-Socratics, to Plato, through Descartes, and and ultimately through probably the linchpin of my narrative philosophically is is Nietzsche to explain how Western metaphysical abstract thinking is denying the world and ultimately that process in and I don't use this word lightly or it's suicidal. Mm -hmm. So I think that that embedded in the trajectory of how we're taught to think is something that's incredibly destructive. Yeah. So I think calling people back to, it sounds trite, but sort of awareness and noticing an engagement in a sincere way with the world is sort of the best. And my path to doing that is sort of the best I can potentially offer. Oh, I love that. And yeah, wow. and, I, and I would say uh, in terms of what, if we had to kind of sum up your book and pick out one particular sort of, it would be my phrase or whatever, let's say if you call it a theme or whatnot, I would essentially say that it's anti-self-help, it's anti-sort of uh, capitalistic, anti-rugged individualistic. And I think the idea fundamentally is it's not your fault that you're in this shit predicament. And that's yeah. what I appreciate the most about it. So again, it's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's not like, you know, oh, hey, you know, you got yourself into this mess and buy my book for like 1995 to help you get yourself out of it. Yeah, 
logical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's yeah. more like like here here's the sort of existential situation. And even if you don't believe you're in it, right? Let's say you are kind of part of the wealthy class or whatever, or the successful, or whatever, you know, whatever you want to kind of right. call them, the one percenters. That no, you're still in this predicament too. And I like what you do is you essentially normalize again, existentially speaking, the human condition and you normalize most of our predicaments. And you essentially, I think, reach almost the same conclusion that Styron does, where you say, you know, there's there's not really much that we could do, you know, about it. But again, the idea is maybe to kind of lean into what we do have. So, right. Yeah. Although uh, getting in, uh, I will say though, uh, practical things like getting into flow states, yeah. engaging with the environment, uh, really being right. focused yeah. is definitely a huge aspect right, as right. well, but right, right. totally. No, no, good, good, good. I actually like that because I tend to think in black and white terms. So yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. All right. So uh, as we wrap up, Alan, final questions for James? Oh, yes. Uh, if you wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where could yeah. we do that? So you can, this is the cliched author's answer to the where to buy the book, but bookstores everywhere online, um, it's pretty ubiquitous. It's published by Pegasus, Simon & Schuster. Uh, so even a small independent bookstore will have no difficulty in ordering it if it's not in stock, um, but it's at all the usual suspects. Um, in terms of social media, um, I'm on Twitter and that's James. Hamilton Hibbard, my middle name, Hamilton, and then also on Instagram with the same handle, as well as Instagram with the Art of Cycling book. Awesome. awesome. James, thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Yeah, this was as great as I thought it was. Yeah. Leon Allen, I really enjoyed it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Thanks, man. man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So, everyone. Uh, if you'd like to follow us, you could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. We're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.